You're listening to an episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. This week in our 82nd overall episode, I'll share my thoughts on the Genesis Invitational at Riviera Country Club, the Russian meltdown on ice, the chatter about a competing golf tour, four waggles and four practice swings. Man, you got to be kidding me. But first, I want to talk about the centennial celebration at the Thatched Hut. In previous podcasts, I've talked about Friday night celebrations at the, what we call the COVID cabana. And it's funny, I say the word we like I'm part of the inner circuit, the Politburo. The fact is, the guys at the cabana just make everybody feel that way. Over the summer, I shared a few shots with country singer and star of the show Nashville and Outer Banks, Charles Esten. His friends call him Chip. It was my first trip to the cabana, and I'll give you a little background on the COVID cabana. In mid-March of 2020, when virtually everything shut down except for grocery stores and a few golf courses, Jeff Parrish, Chad Waldorf, and a few other Sullivan's Island dwellers met at a cabana on the beach that Chad had built to offer his friends and family a convenient beach experience. After their first get-together that night, they talked about maybe repeating it again the following Friday. You know, kind of like a poker game I used to attend back in Chicago. As each Friday approached and more businesses closed their doors, more and more Sullivan sidekicks started to attend. By the end of the summer, most couples and families were spending a lot of indoor time together. So by the end of the summer, a lot of wives were encouraging their husbands to go to this Friday night cocktail party. Just get out of the house. So it starts with two weeks. Then it becomes five, 10, 25, 52 weeks. A freaking year of Friday night cocktail parties without any breaks. And they even had a few all-couples invited events at the cabana, but I would say 96% of the gatherings would be classified as a sausage party. Basically, guys only. Almost like our gangs, you know, Spanky and Alfalfa when they had the Woman Haters Club. Now, this certainly was not a Woman Haters Club, but it just tended to be all guys talking about stupid shit that their wives would absolutely get bored of if they had to talk in front of their wives on some of these subjects. So I think it was good for everybody. Certainly good for the wives, good for the families, and good for the guys to break out and have a guy's night out. The one constant in all of these Friday nights was the commissioner, Jeff Parrish, a friend of mine who I work with at the golf course, who attended every Friday night without missing any Friday nights. I've been to a dozen of these gatherings and always left thinking that I had at least three really good conversations, none of which I started or deadheaded. The crew that shows up at the hut is eclectic, interesting, and the farthest thing from introverted. 
I always enjoyed cross-pollinating to try and catch up on topical points of interest. The conversation ranged from nuclear physics. Okay, that was a stretch for my brain. Inhabiting Mars, developing a logistics and software company at 25 years old. World travels, American diplomacy. We have an ex-U.S. ambassador that still hosts Zoom meetings with State Department on diplomacy for young and upcoming new politicians that need to understand how countries react. And when certain things happen, who do you go to first? What other countries do you need to talk to? He's an expert. And by the way, that's not the most interesting thing about this guy, even though he's really interesting. I would say the fact that he knows how to make Long Island iced teas because he worked at the bar where they originated Long Island iced teas, still not the most interesting thing about him. Here's the most interesting thing. He dated Sybil Shepherd when she was a 10. And I think everybody at the Capanna would agree that that's a lot more interesting than his take on what Putin's next move is. I mean, there are hundreds of discussions on restaurants and food worldwide as one of the hosts has been a successful restaurateur and commercial real estate developer all while co-parenting a trifecta of youth that's not easy to balance my career in consumer products is rarely a topic of interest except for one friday night when i whipped out my partial career in the porn and sex toy industry well then i became another interesting addition to the cabana. This last Friday, we celebrated the 100th consecutive Friday at the Thatched Hut, fondly referred to as the COVID cabana. And I would tell you this, a hundred of most anything is notable. A hundred consecutive Fridays is an accomplishment. So to all of my new and future friends, cheers. And here's to another 100. Four waggles and four practice swings? Man, you gotta be kidding me. What is it about the episodic, impermanent, unenduring, and transitory sport of golf? We're taught by just about any and every golf coach worth their weight in a filled lesson calendar that we have to develop a transportable pre-shot routine. Now, this routine helps us to settle our nerves, focus on the target, and concentrate on that one swing thought that will help us replicate a solid, well-balanced swing. And the fact that it took me that long to spell it out in multiple sentences would suggest there's nothing simple about perfecting a swing. There's this golf club testing machine called Iron Byron that swings a golf club at the same repeatable speed, the same angle of attack, the same follow through, and it tends to get the same ball flight. Unless you change your balls, it is going to hit balls pretty close to each other, depending on what club you use. 
So even this perfect machine can be imperfect in producing intended results. You switch balls up. Maybe it gets windy. You know, maybe the conditions around this machine changes. It will then have different results. Now replace Iron Byron with a Tor Pro. And he or she are going to hit a very close grouping of balls depending on what club they use. But certainly not as tight a grouping of balls as you'd see from Iron Byron. They, they don't have the exact repeatable speed and angle of approach than the machine does, but they have been spending hours on the range, years of lessons, years of head coaches, swing coaches, fitness coaches, and all of that translates into you still have some of the best golfers in the world that are not making cuts because for whatever reason, they are not hitting the ball perfectly every time. I mean, not every tour professional's mind and body are at their peak every day. I mean, you've seen great tour players that get injured and they're not going to play their best or they have personal issues. So I think the best that we can do as amateurs is do the best to prepare our minds and our bodies to perform at our best and just accept the outcome. Some golfers, when hitting a few bad shots in a row, lose it and start cursing, breaking, and throwing clubs. In my estimation, there's something else in the background that's at play. I call it the pee under the mattress. Personal issues off the course, health issues, embarrassment in front of people that you want to impress, or just total disbelief that all the money you just spent on new golf equipment, lessons, balls, and even threads were like throwing money down the drain. It's hard to believe that. Then you start hitting some bad shots and you're like, what am I doing? Losing your swing is just a horrible feeling. I've talked to so many people that say they took a break for whatever, maybe they're traveling, they got, whatever it is, they were off the golf course, maybe it's too cold. And then they come back and they have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea where their hands are in their backswing. All of those things that, that as a golfer, if you're a field player, you kind of get when you're playing a lot. There's just a feeling you get when you take your club back and it's in the backswing and you bring it down into the pocket to hit the You know what that feels like. <sighs> okay, maybe not that good, but I think you get my point. And now, after not doing it for whatever that period is, you've lost it. So as much as losing your swing is a horrible feeling, you know what's worse? I think losing your shit in front of others. Fuck you, Curry! Bitch! Fuck! Fuck! Hey, hold up! For me, after reading volumes of golf psych books, I decided sometime in my late 30s to get over myself and accept my own golf shortcomings. It doesn't make me less competitive despite my chill, some people call it a stoner demeanor on the golf course. As I sit back, relax, think about the sexy singers that I want to sex. I'm probably going to jail for fucking Look, I want to hit shots that I envision in my pre-shot routine. I want to make every putt. Despite some of my recent 
missed five and six foot putts that never made it to the cup, I still want to make it to the cup. I accept that sometimes in the course of my pre-shot routine and my golf stroke, I second guess myself and my conscious and subconscious Richie play tug of war with each other. I'm fully aware of all of those free-spirited neurons just all firing at the same time in the middle of a golf swing. That's my bottle to face and overcome. Now, sometimes bourbon, beer, or moonshine helps until it doesn't. And all of that being said, I'm not known for losing my shit on a golf course as a result of missing shots. Some golfers would say, who cares if you lose your shit? Just let's not lose money. Just make that freaking putt. Or we as a team have to face the other guys right outside the 18th green, open our wallets and pay them. I don't care if you lose your shit. Don't lose the match. But some golfers actually need to get mad at themselves to get out of their own heads. I played with a buddy when I used to work at this company. We worked at this company for almost 30 years. And he and I, whenever we had these corporate boondoggles or outings, would try and get matched up together. We would tend to play in teams against each other, likely because we had similar handicaps. So my buddy, we'll call him Stan, could outdrive me, uh, probably hit more greens in regulation, and was a pretty good putter. Every once in a while, he'd come to the course with what seemed to be this un- uncontrollable 275 to 300-yard duck hook. Now, a 200-yard hook usually finds the course, but 275 to 300 yards usually finds the water or the woods. We had a few matches where he started off hooking his drives, and he would start to yell his name out, followed by one of George Carlin's seven words. And if his getting mad at himself and yelling at himself didn't work, you could always project that there'd be a club thrown or maybe every, every once in a while a driver, you know, punched down onto the ground in anger and sometimes broken. When I first started competing with him, I witnessed that and I thought in the beginning of the round, okay, he's lost his shit. I got him exactly where I want him. And then once something happens where a club breaks or he throws a club, the next 10 holes, he pars and birdies out, possibly to win our match. And after watching him do that a few times, I just noticed that his anger translates into better golf. Now, it's hard to watch for two reasons. One, I think it's uncomfortable for me to watch somebody lose their cool. It never benefited me in any sport that I've played, even contact sports. When I lost my cool, I lost my strategy. And when I lost my strategy, I'd get penalties out the ass. So, you know, I didn't like seeing myself self-destruct. So I didn't like watching others self-destruct, even if it means me winning money. The second thing I didn't like about it with him is he got himself back in the match. And as much as I don't like watching self-destruction and him handing me money 
because he self-destructed? I hated handing him money and losing the match. So all of this leads me back to the the topic here, and it's four waggles and four practice swings. So I think the best way that somebody can control their game is establishing a pre-shot routine that clears their head and gets their body loose enough to swing and hit the ball. And it's the same one with your drivers and your irons. And then separately on the green, it is the same behavior you always do before you putt. I was talking to this golfer on the first tee the other day, and she said that the prior week I had paired her up with a partner that was a compulsive waggler and practice swinger. She said this guy would get up to his ball, do four practice swings, which by the way is probably two too many. And then just start to do all these waggles. One, two, three, four. Maybe it was more than four. Sometimes it was eight or nine. Now, this is unnerving for every golfer that tees it up with this guy. I mean, you'd rather stick a fork in your eyes. It would probably feel better than sitting there and watching because you just want to see somebody get up to the ball, maybe do a waggle, maybe do a practice swing, and then hit their ball. But then I started thinking, you know, when she shared this story with me, I have seen countless golfers also just try and get out of their heads or build their confidence up to hit a shot where they believe after they've done all their pre-swings and their waggles that this real swing is going to be the real deal and hit the ball exactly where they want because now they've built up their confidence. So I started thinking, imagine it's hard enough to play golf. It's hard enough for me to play from the right side. Imagine all of a sudden if somebody handed me a left-handed set of clubs and said, go out and play. I would be doing a lot of practice swings and I would be doing a lot of waggling. So maybe the way somebody who is not natural on one side of the ball, maybe that's how another golfer feels all the time. So maybe if you're confronted with uh, and you're paired up with a golfer like this, you know, either think that that's what it would feel like if you had a hit the other way um, or don't look. Or if you're like one of my friends who most of the times uses a sledgehammer to nail in thumbtacks, you might just say, hey, you're not that good. Take one practice swing and hit the freaking ball. I mean, it couldn't be any worse, right? Yeah, and talk about not being that good. Kamila Valieva, the Russian 15-year-old skater. I watched her for the first time when she was in first place competing for the gold medal this weekend. And understand, I'd never seen her skate before. I mean, if you hadn't ever watched competitive ice skating or ice dancing, and Camilla's skate for gold was your first impression, you'd be like, what's all the hype about? She fell on at least one jump, touched her hands to the ice, and lost balance on two others. And it's like, yeah, what's so good about her? So what? Well, that's somewhat of a false narrative with a little sarcasm sprinkled on top for effect. 
As I spoke about in my last podcast, the ROC, the Russian Olympic Committee, was allowed to feature athletes from Russia. However, if they won, the Russian anthem wouldn't be played. That's one of the penalties that Russian athletes were handed as a result of a Russian statewide doping scheme. So now days into this multi-bracketed competition, Camilla Valieva was found to have a banned drug in her blood test. At first, there were rumors of her accidentally taking her grandfather's heart medicine, but further investigation would reveal that she had multiple prescriptions for this drug over a period of time. Freaking records. I mean, remember when the Olympics started in Greece in 776 BC? There was one event. It was a foot race in honor of the Greek god Zeus. There were no digital records. So who knew if the winner of the first Olympic race, Corobus, was packing herbs in his tea? You didn't know then, but you know now. The 15-year-old Camilla Valieva should never have been allowed to skate in the finals. The ROC convinced the Olympic Committee to allow her to skate or she'd be irreparably damaged the rest of her life. The Olympic Committee acquiesced, but announced that if she made, um, she made it into any of the medals, they would have no medal ceremony until they got to the bottom of the investigation. Her two other teammates, 17-year-olds, Alexandra Trusova and Sharbakova, and I apologize for butchering the names, they both skated before Camilla and both placed in the top two. All Camilla had to do was skate her normal skate, and she would have gotten the gold medal. And interestingly enough, all three of them had been coached by browbeating Eteri Tuparitze who on all accounts would be Cruella DeVille's evil sister who makes Casey Anthony look like Mother Teresa. When Camila exited the ice after the worst skate in her professional career, I call it a professional career because I think that's what it is, Atiri scolded her under her mask and called her a quitter. Now imagine this, you are skating in front of millions and millions of people and all of this strife is happening between your first skate and now everybody's accusing you of doping and now you're allowed to skate. So you go out there with fingers pointing out you and all this controversy and you just screw up and the pressure just gets to you. Now, I understand tough love coaching. Even the Carolis who had coached gymnastics, came to the United States and coached the U.S. gymnastics team, were known for administering tough love. I get that. You got to be tough. But this girl comes off the rink. She has just failed. And now she comes off the rink. And the coach who's really tough should at least put their arm around him and say, I get it. I'm sorry. You know, no. <laughs> what she's saying is, you quit. You, why did you quit? And she's still under her mask. And obviously there are translators that are hearing this in Russian and are translating it. It's like, you quit. Why did you quit? Now this girl, you know, I mean, she slipped, she fell. She slipped. Her head was definitely not in it. 
but it gets worse and without mispronouncing the girl's names. The gal, call her Trusova, who came in silver, got the silver medal. She is crying. She just won the silver medal. She's crying because her other skatemate ended up getting the gold. And she's crying because she did five quadruple spins, quadruple axles, sow cows, whatever they were. And I guess she just assumed because she did something that most people don't do, that the judges would give her the highest scores. And they did it. And she's crying. And she's like, I hate this sport. I want to quit. Meanwhile, the gal who gets the gold, nobody comes up. She's sitting by herself. Her coaches have walked away from her. She just won the gold. Because they have to console this one gal that's crying that she didn't get the gold and the other one who's crying because she slipped and fell and she should have gotten the gold and her coach is yelling at her. Meanwhile, the gold medal winner is all by herself. I mean, what a screw up. The implosion of the Russian skaters emotionally. I, you know, I just think it's kismet. If you believe in how you treat others comes around to how the world treats you, then I think the world just got to see it in action with the Russian skaters. I, you know, I think any of us who have been parents of teenagers kind of know emotionally what they are capable of. In a situation like this, you have put them in a pressure cooker. I'm not sure that a 15-year-old could handle it. And I think in this situation with, you know, the ROC committee, the Olympic committee, I think the adults in the room made a mistake. The irreparable harm was done by letting her skate. I mean, the pressure for these teenagers was like 20 leagues under the sea. The Genesis Invitational at Riviera Country Club. But before I get to the Genesis International, there's a lot of buzz around the PGA about this alternate league, this LIV. You know, it's backed by Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, you know, the PIF. I talked about it in previous podcasts, chaired by Greg Norman. I mean, they're putting up tens of millions of dollars in guarantees for players. All they have to do is show up. The Saudi organization is affiliated with the Asian Tour, making it easier to woo players with the promise of official world ranking points in future events. And they're looking at 54 whole events instead of 72 whole events to allow players to go do other things. No cuts, 40 players. I think competition in business can be good. This year, the PGA increased overall tournament purses from an average of $8.2 million up to nine one, And I think it really had to do with this alternate tour throwing money around. So I think from the standpoint of competition, I think a business is good. High tides rise all boats. Players are becoming more vocal as our ever-pressuring media pepper them with questions about their intent. Who are you going to play for? Which of the tours are you going to play for? Players like Rom, Tiger, and McElroy have pledged their fealty to the PGA. Do you ever notice how wealthy people often downplay the value of more money? It's like, you know, I'm not doing this for the money. Money's that not that important. 
They acquire vast material things, influence others, and leverage forces that used to oppose them to a point where they become forgetful. And degrees of wealth becomes an abstraction. Rory's response was something like this. I'm already very wealthy. More money won't affect my life one bit. I still use the same three or four rooms in my house. I don't see the value in tarnishing a reputation for millions. First of all, how many fucking rooms does Rory have in his mansion to suggest that that more money in the past decade hasn't influenced him to venture out to some of these other rooms, maybe a bowling alley or an executive dining room? And I'm kidding, of course. I like Rory, and I wish I had his golf swing. I think uh, he's the coolest guy to watch on tour. I admire his loyalty to an organization that's helped make him the world-ranked celebrity that he is. John Rahm and Tiger have spoken out similarly, except they omitted the four-room comment. But now other players, DJ has made a comment. DeChambeau has been, they're all publicly going on record And so you don't know what's happening in the background. You don't know the conversations they're having with their agents, their management companies, the PGA of America, but something certainly is brewing for each of these players now to be making these public statements of fealty. So we'll see how it plays out. Riviera Country Club is located in the quaint and pricey neighborhood of Pacific Palisades, just a 15-minute drive from downtown Santa Monica. I had the pleasure of playing the course during one of my business golf boondoggles when I lived in Southern California. It was a business outing that started with our customer buying up just about one of everything in the pro shop. A cocktail on every third hole, two broken clubs out of the sheer frustration that the course provides, and then a gourmet meal in the clubhouse followed by my esteemed customer scoring the digits from our server who would have scored a 12 out of 10. So all in all, it was a good day. As the course goes at Riviera, the fairways were as tight as you could see in the telecast. The greens are fickle with this poana grass that where everything tends to break towards the ocean. You just need to know where the ocean is because you really can't see it from the course. The fairways in the rough are full of this kukuya grass, which gets tougher the more you hit it in places where they don't mow. The pros make it look easy like they do on most courses. A few weeks ago, somebody was saying, you know, I'm starting to see like a changing of the guards in the PGA. And I guess it happens all the time and you don't notice it because you tend to watch your, the favorites, the ones that are most televised, and they tend to be people that have been on the tour for a while. We've had a lot of first time winners this year. And so it's really interesting. The best scoring pros this weekend were Gen Z and millennials. I think we should get used to that as as we start to see the changing of the guards in the winner's circle. Neiman, Young, Hovland, Thomas, Morikawa. I mean, Thomas is the senior at 28 years old. I didn't know much about Joaquin Neiman until 
until this summer I stood next to him on the 17th tee box at the Ocean Course in Kiowa Island during the PGA Championship. Like I was outside the ropes, he's inside, but we're still like seven yards away from each other. The 17th hole at the Ocean Course is a par three, 200-yard shot over this pond from an elevated um, tee box. It's daunting. So I'm standing there. I don't know much about Joaquin, and he takes one or two practice shots. Now, he's this very thin. I don't want to say he's short. He might be six feet tall. I don't know. Uh, There were taller guys and bigger guys than him. Matter of fact, he looked from a body standpoint, he looked like a child amongst men. So he gets up there. I don't know much about him, and I wasn't looking at my phone. And then I watch him take a swing at the ball. And his club makes the loudest click sound when the ball missiles off his club, you know, landing just yards from the pin. And his flight path was like like a gunshot. I mean, it wasn't one of these balls that he hits and flies way up in the air and then, you know, falls down like a butterfly. This thing was like a bullet. And I'm watching this kid. And when he, you know, because of his size, to be able to generate that kind of club head speed, I mean, this guy contorts like nobody I've seen on tour. And I hope that he still works with swing coaches and fitness coaches to maintain that. I think over time, he's going to gain size. And he's going to have to protect that flexibility. But when I watched him, I just thought, oh, this guy is going to be in the winners. This guy is good. And he clearly was different. I had watched 12 other golfers standing up there. He's the guy that I remembered the most. So here he is leading the tournament coming into Sunday. And the first person ever to shoot eight under par two days in a row, Thursday and Friday. But I got to tell you, after standing next to him, watching him hit the ball, Um, I'm not surprised, (laughs) you know, it's like all these Gen Z guys and millennials, man, they're like Gumby. They are so freaking flexible with so much strength and power. But my, my favorite swing to follow over the weekend was Cameron Young. I happen to like his hesitation in his backswing. And then this velocity that he has to come down on his downswing is pretty strong, almost like a John Rahm kind of velocity. You know, and it's really fun because when you're watching the tournament on TV, the announcers have enough time to give you a little color, a little background. I didn't know that this guy, as when he was a teenager, he shoots a 64 at Beth Page Black at the New York Open. He's a teenager, and he wins it as an amateur against these hardened professionals. So... We might not know about him, but I got to believe the New York golf world knows all about this guy. So it was fun for me to watch the tournament over the weekend. Once you've played a given course and then watch touring pros play it, it makes it that much more interesting to you just to see where they're landing the ball and how they putt it. Neiman pulled off the win on Sunday by holding on to his 54-hole lead despite the charge by players like uh, Colin Morikawa. It's rare for a player to lead a PJ event after 54 holes and then go out on Sunday and shoot a 62. Usually players, good players like that, go into this smart mode where they position themselves for birdies and eagles, but then lag chip shots and putts 
for easy pars and maybe a birdie here or there. For all of you golf fans worldwide, I hope your local weather warms up like it's starting to do here in Charleston so you could get out and swing for the fences. You've been listening to an episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.